Well, it's only fitting that on a Connect Sunday, we continue our series on impact. <laughs> and when you came in, you should have picked up or you can pick up a five by five card. And the five by five card issues the challenge or gives you some details for the challenge uh, that we issued. But before we get to the card, I wanted to mention that we have two values here, Connect and Impact, and you see them around the building. They're not totally separate, however. They actually overlap, kind of like you see in the picture there. And so as we connect with God and he impacts our lives, we then are sent to connect with others and impact their lives with the gospel. And they're not totally different. They actually work together. We're looking at them separately so we can understand them a little better. But in reality, they actually overlap and function together. Well, on the five by five card, if you remember our challenge, it goes like this. We're working our way through 1 John in our impact series. And uh, I've issued a challenge to read through 1 John, and if you're really a diligent student, 2 John and 3 John too, little short books, five times over the next couple of months, and to memorize five verses. Now, some of you may not have memorized many verses before. Here's your opportunity. Some of you have a head start. You've already memorized some of these verses in the past. It's five by five, read through five times and memorize five verses. Pick up a card if you're kind of a paper person. If not, you can go online. Uh, these are scattered all over the place online. Well, here are the verses that we're going to ask you to memorize. I'm just going to read through them uh, just so you'll recognize them. First John 1, 9, we're actually going to look at this verse today. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the foundation. But what's the basis of that forgiveness? What's the basis? It's not our confession. Well, the next couple of verses tell us. My dear children, John writes, I write this so that you will not sin. That's a good thing, right? I love this next word. But God knows he's writing that to me too, right? I'm writing this that you're not sin, but I know you are going to sin. And if you do, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that's the foundation of the forgiveness that comes. A little further along in the book we read, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Throughout the summer when we did connect and now with impact, we're saying we need to externally express, outwardly express that inward reality. And the Bible reminds us of that all the time. You know that you know him, that's an internal thing, by expressing it by doing what he says and following his commands. Another verse we're asking you to memorize, 3.16. You know, John 3.16, here's 1 John 3.16, kind of go hand in hand. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, right? And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Remember we talked about that crazy, counter-cultural, counter-intuitive call of the gospel. Treat others as God has treated you. Don't treat other people as you think they deserve to be treated. Don't treat them the way they treated you. Treat others the way God has treated you. That's what we're reminded of in 1 John 3.16. And 5.13, here's kind of the statement of the book, his purpose statement. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to church members. And he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want us to go through life wishing, hoping, you know, vacillating back and forth. He wants us to have assurance. And if you remember last week, I said that John gives us three evidences that he keeps running around again and again. And as you read through, if you kind of mark your Bible or on your phone, whatever you do, you may want to highlight these. John says, you'll know that you're a follower of mine. You'll know that you're a Christian. You can have assurance if you're believing more of the truth, primarily truth about Jesus. 
And the truth we talked about last week was the incarnation, God becoming a human being. We're gonna learn about the second part of that truth today, not who Jesus is, but what Jesus does. He comes as our substitute. You've gotta believe the truth. You also need to live the life of the gospel. Your life should be evidence, an outward expression of that inner reality, living a life and then loving one another. Those are the three evidences that you should be looking at and you should be seeing in yourself that gives you assurance. Well, that brings us to our topic this morning. And that is coming clean. You think, well, I am clean. I got a shower before I came, Charles, I'm good. But it's a little different. If you have your Bibles or your phone or your iPad, whatever you've got, I'm gonna read verses five through chapter two, two. And this is one of the places in the Bible where I think the chapter divisions don't help us. They kind of hinder us. So chapter two really should be down at, at verse three, but who am I to kind of argue with the editors, right? And John didn't write in chapters, right? So he didn't do it. Somebody kind of read the thing and said, well, I think one and two should go with chapter two rather than chapter one. I kind of think one and two should go with chapter one. You can decide for yourself after I read it. So here we go. Verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, John teaches us about confession. Now, I say the word confession, and I know immediately a lot of you think, okay, I need to think about all the bad stuff I've done. And some of you have a lot of stuff to think about when you do that. Maybe you had a, an experience as a, as a child or, you know, in the past where you go into a little booth and you confess to a priest. And so you're conjuring up things that are bad. So, you know, he doesn't think you're oblivious. At the same time, you don't want to say something really bad because then he'll throw you out. And so you're, but what am I going to confess? Well, the problem is when I say the word confess or confession, we almost always think of ourselves first. What have I done how have I failed? How am I living outside of what God wants me to? How am I not doing what he says do? How am I doing what he says not do? How am I failing? That's a really big difference from what we find in the Bible. Confession in the Bible never begins with me. And it doesn't begin with you. Confession actually begins with God. Remember, I gave you the paradigm during the summer. I know most of you forgot, but here's the paradigm. Seeing God leads to seeing yourself. Seeing yourself leads to seeing your sin. It always starts with God. We don't even have a frame of reference about what is sin, what light is, how are we failing, unless we catch a glimpse of perfection, unless we catch a glimpse of holiness, a picture of God. So confession in the Bible always begins with catching a glimpse of God. And that's exactly what we find here in 1 John. First of all, there's good news. 
And the good news is, God is light. See what, see what verse five says? John says, God is light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. It's kind of interesting. If you were to read through the Bible, and this would be a good assignment for some of you. You have a couple of weeks with nothing to do. I'd read through the Bible and look up every reference for light. Now, I didn't do this, right? But I, I've read some things where other people did it. <laughs> every reference for light. Here's what we discover. Light gives life, right? So in the very beginning of the Bible, God says, let there be light, there's light, and then life comes. Light gives life. There's cause and effect going on. Light is also used in the Bible for truth. We still use it that way, right? Oh yeah, the light went on, now I understand, right? Oh, I see it now. Light allows us to see things. Light reveals truth. Now we know that because if you're in a dark room or it's pitch black outside with no starlight, moonlight, sunlight, it's dangerous, right? How do you navigate obstacles? How do you keep from tripping over this? Um, you know, when I get up most mornings, I turn on my phone and I make my way to the bathroom so I don't stumble over junk I've left on the floor between the bed and the bathroom. Light allows us to see reality. Light gives us truth. Light also in the Bible is goodness. Light is good. In fact, that's kind of what John's hinting at here. It says God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. God is good. Have you ever met somebody and you kind of think they're good, right? But the longer you kind of get to know them and you learn more about them, you begin to scratch your head and say, it's kind of a dark side to that person, right? Not sure I can trust that person completely. I wonder what they're going to do with that information. And then you begin to, to conceal things. You begin to not share as much. You never have to worry about that with God. There's no dark side at all. There's never a side to God that causes us to run and hide. God is light. He's good. Here's another thing. Yeah. Light allows community. Did you ever realize if you're in the absolute pitch black darkness, it's pretty tough to have community, right? You've got to see each other. Uh, you know, one of the disconcerting things sometimes if in an auditorium like this, it's nice now because I feel like I'm with you because the light's on and I see you. But every once in a while when we're up here, the house lights are down and we can't see any of you. It kind of feels like you're all alone, even though we're not alone. That's a little strange. Light allows and provides the context for community. So all of those words wrapped up give us a picture of who God is. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. That's good news. Can you imagine if God did have a dark side? I mean, can you imagine what, what it would be like if God promises something today that you really like, but then you find out he changes his mind tomorrow? All of a sudden, yeah, Jesus is my plan of salvation, but you know, next week I, I may come up with another plan. No, God's faithful. He's not going to change. There's no darkness at all. God is the ultimate giver of life. God is the ultimate revealer of truth. God provides community and God allows us to experience and then to extend goodness. All of that in the word light. In fact, light in this context, probably is a pretty good synonym for holy. God's holy, right? He's all those things together. 
So before I move on, I probably at least need to say there can be kind of a downside to light. Did you ever notice that? So like, you know, in our day, and summer's coming to an end, there may be some sun worshipers here, right? And what do sun worshipers do? Well, they, they lie on a beach or lie on a chair and they uh, soak in the rays. Now, you're not supposed to do that anymore, right? Because of all kind of skin concerns. But uh, those still, people still go do it. Think of plants and flowers. They rise toward the sun. They're, but what's the reality? If the plants and flowers or the sun worshipers ever got too close, they'd be, exten- they'd be extenerated, right? They'd be gone. You can't get so close and continue to live. Light is something that is unholy, darkness, not good, moving in the wrong direction, gets close to the light. There may be pain. There may be bad news that comes. Oh, that brings us to the next thing that John says. There is bad news. And the bad news is that we are not light. In fact, we are sinners. In fact, nine times in the verses that I read, you can check it out, and and that's not even counting the metaphors, nine times we're told that we turn from the light to the darkness. Rather than wanting to understand the truth, rather than wanting to live in community, rather than experiencing goodness, we turn from the light toward the darkness. We are sinners. In fact, John says it as plainly as he can. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are sinful. We are those that turn from the light to the darkness. And I know that you may not feel the weight of that. Most of the time we don't. You know, sin's kind of a, if it's not a chuckle word, at least it isn't a a super serious word. But think about it this way. Suppose there was a, a judge. And you can think of a TV show, maybe Law and Order, you can think of, or you can think of a, a, a story in reality. What would you think of a judge where the defendant comes in, the evidence is ironclad. The evidence, it cannot be um, distorted. The evidence, is, evidence cannot be put aside. This person is guilty. Kidnapping, murder, as bad as it can be, right? L- slander, lying, rape, murder all of the crimes laid out, and the evidence is there. What would you think of the judge who said, well, you know what, I'm having a good day. You can just go. I'll just kind of forgive you. Well, there would be such an outcry, right? When you see a movie like that, when the criminal gets off on a technicality, something in your stomach knows that that's not right, and you kind of rise against it and say, that judge needs to be removed. That judge is not just. That judge is not about justice. That justice is not extending truth and goodness, that judge is perverting justice. That judge is somehow participating in the darkness. It's not working. Okay, well, let's extend that then. What would you think of God if he's holy light and no darkness at all, and he is judge, and before him comes someone who is guilty has turned from the light to the darkness, what would you think if that God just said, well, you know what, I'm having a good day. You you can go. Isn't it interesting? In our day, we ask the opposite question that the Bible often asks. Here's the question we ask in in our culture, right? How can God 
sentence people to judgment. How can God enact some kind of punishment? God should love people. The question of the Bible is this question. How can God be holy and just and just turn his back and excuse all of this sin? How can God maintain justice and allow all of that to continue without any payment being made? We flip the question. Well, all of a sudden, if you look at the bad news in that way and you include yourself in that, all of a sudden the bad news becomes really bad news, doesn't it? Because we realize as we've turned from the light to the darkness, there are consequences to that. And God has set his standard. God, sent his, God has given his law, his parameters on how we should live. We've rebelled against him. We've lived outside of all of those bounds. And how in the world can a just God who maintained justice and just kind of close his eyes and blindly allow those that are guilty to go free? Sin just doesn't evaporate into thin air. Well, that really brings us to the great news, right? Aren't you glad we don't end right there? So there's good news. God is light. There's bad news. We're sinners. And the weight of that needs to kind of weigh us down a little bit. And we need to wrestle with that. But the great news is that Jesus is substitute. That's the great news. And so there's a kind of a word tucked away in chapter two there. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Now, what the heck is atoning sacrifice? If you use an older translation or the ESV, you have the big fancy word propitiation. And here's what that means. Justice has now been served, right? So Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. So, so, so think to the Old Testament, right? And, and that's what John's doing. John's saying in the Old Testament, there was this whole system set up. God, the good news is, even the Old Testament, God is light. The bad news is, hey, you guys have lived outside the bounds. You guys are sinful. And that creates a major dilemma. How can God be just and holy and just excuse this or turn a blind, blind eye to it? He can't. Oh, but God has a plan. You can bring an atoning sacrifice. And so they would go out into their flock, into their herd, and they'd find an innocent animal that meets the parameters that God gives, and they'd bring it to the temple. And the innocent would die for the guilty, and the atoning sacrifice would cover their sin. Well, by the time you get to the New Testament, and by the time you come to 1 John, here's the question. How in the world can animals pay for the sin of human beings? And the answer is, they can't. Animals are pointing to something, but the animals are not the something. Animals served as an atoning sacrifice, pointing to the ultimate atoning sacrifice. And here are a couple words tucked into 1-9, the verse you should be memorizing. It goes like this. God can be faithful and just. How can he be faithful? Faithful to his promise to forgive those who confess, just maintaining justice only because in chapter 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. That's the only way it works. And so the court scene, even though you may not like it, kind of goes like this. You and I, I'll use me. I am the defendant. And the prosecution lists all these charges. And I sit there wishing I could crawl under the table because I'm thinking, yeah, I'm in a world of trouble here. Uh, but I got Jesus as my attorney, so I'm in good shape, right? 
And then uh, eventually it comes time for the defense, and my attorney uh, stands, and he says, uh, Your Honor, Father, all of the accusations and charges are true. My client is guilty. And I think, what? What kind of attorney is this? Um, isn't there a technicality? Couldn't you at least say, I didn't mean it most of the time? Couldn't you say, oh, I try, I'll try harder next time? What do you mean saying I'm guilty and I have no excuse? But he's not finished. But then he says, Father, Your Honor, but he is one of mine. I am the atoning sacrifice for all of his sins. I paid the debt completely that he owes. And so in the name of justice, he must be declared righteous. He's not righteous. He must be declared righteous because of the atoning sacrifice that I am for him. The gavel sounds and we are declared righteous. That's the gospel. That's how it works. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice. Now, I didn't want to end just kind of educating or re-educating, thinking about the good news God is like, the bad news we're sin, well, the great news Jesus is substitute. I want to end with giving us all an opportunity to actually confess. Not out loud, don't worry, don't get nervous. I'm not going to have you come up and hand you the microphone. Um, but I'm going to kind of walk you through the steps that the Bible provides. And if you've never done this ever, ultimately, you can do it right now, and Jesus can become your atoning sacrifice for the first time. If you've done it often, you and I need to do it again, because we, after the but, I write these things so you will not sin, but if you do, we regularly sin. Here's how the process works. The process begins with agreeing, agreeing. Actually, the word confession just means agree with, agree with. And that's why it has to start with God. Confession begins with agreeing with God. Not saying, but I didn't really mean it. I, uh, technically, I didn't do it. You know what? My sin's not as bad as hers. No, no, no. It's agreeing with God. Yes, I agree. I agree. God is light and I am not. And when I catch a glimpse of God in his glory, I recognize that, boy, I'm a whole lot more dark and I'm a whole lot more sinful than I can imagine, right? The more you see of God, the more you're going to save yourself and the more painful it's going to be. Well, after agreeing, you have to admit. And here's the difference with uh, admit. You have to own it, right? You know, there's one it's one thing to agree. It's another thing to actually admit it, to own it. Yes, I did it. I am fully responsible. It's not, well, you know what? She's 40%. No, no, no. There's no percentages here. You and I are responsible for our part of whatever the part is. So we agree and we admit. Now, here's a problem that we have. We live in a world of Photoshop and filter. Is that right? How many of you know what Photoshop is? Raise your hand. Yeah, Photoshop is something that photographers use and people that post on Facebook and Instagram use. And that is they go in and they change the photo to hide the blemishes, take off 30 or 40 pounds, right? They change the hair color. Now there's such a thing, if you're posting pictures on Instagram, you can filter them. So here are a few pictures. If you don't want the blemishes or freckles, you just take them and keep the blue hair, but take out the freckles. 
If you want red hair that's curly rather than blonde, you can change that. With the before and the after, you can get rid of any blemish, any picture. I don't know about you, isn't that the temptation when we come to God to confess? We wanna put our thumb on the scale. Yes, Lord, I did this, but, yes, I did. But you know, it's not as bad as you, it's as bad as you think. God's got, you can't hide it from him. No filters, no Photoshop. Come to God and come clean. You agree and you admit it. You own it. You take full responsibility. No blame shifting, no blaming someone else, no putting it aside. It's you. Well, after that, you need to ask. Ask. Ask God to forgive your sin. And here's a really important thing. You should get this by now, but let me just make it clear in case case you missed it. God does not forgive your sin because you confessed your sin. God forgives your sin because Jesus is your atoning sacrifice. When you confess, you're agreeing that you deserve the punishment, but Jesus is the provision for you to be forgiven. So we confess, we ask God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so if all of your confession up until, up until this point has basically, oh, please forgive me, I'm really sorry for this, that doesn't cut it. If you've not asked Jesus, had, had, if you don't have Jesus as your atoning sacrifice, your confession is kind of not working. Jesus is the atonement. When you ask forgiveness, you're asking Jesus to continue to be or to be for the first time your atoning sacrifice. And after you ask, you then accept. You accept. You accept the forgiveness. You may not feel like it, but you take God at his word. So in this passage, a couple of times it says, if you say you've never sinned, you're calling God a liar and you're deceiving her. It may feel like you haven't, but you know what? You really have. And if you're trusting Jesus as your atoning sacrifice, and if you've asked and admitted it, and you've done those things, on the basis of God's promise, you can have that acceptance and assurance that comes from it, and life change will begin to occur. Except, you know, uh, we're not a real uh, liturgical church, you know, it kind of follows a script. But the one thing I always like about liturgical services is somewhere in the service, uh, probably before uh, the message or maybe right after, there's the prayer of confession. And here's how that works. The prayer of confession is usually read by the people in the congregation, right? All the scumbags out there, right? They all pray the prayer of confession. Once the prayer of confession is made, the priest standing in you know, the place of God, the priest then speaks words of absolution. Absolution basically means on the basis of what Christ has accomplished, your sin is forgiven. Now go in freedom, go and experience life, go and live the truth, go and live the life, go and love one another. Absolution comes after we agree, we admit, we ask, and we accept. So all that's found in little confession, Acts, uh, 1 John 1, 9. I hope you memorize the verses. If we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just, both faithful to his promise and just. He can maintain justice because Jesus is our substitute. And on the basis of Jesus being our atoning sacrifice, we can be forgiven of our sins. Confession reminds us of who God is. That's good news. He's light. Reminds us of who we are. Those who rebel and turn to the darkness. But the great news is that Jesus is our 
atoning sacrifice, our substitute that took our place so that we can be forgiven forever and ever and we can have assurance of that fact. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing for us to, uh, to just rehearse in our minds what Jesus has accomplished. Last week, we thought about who Jesus is. He's God, putting on flesh and becoming a human being. But more than that, he then descends to the point of paying the debt that we owe. Because he's God, the payment is infinite. And because he became a human being, he can take our place. And so because of who he is and what he's done, we can be forgiven and we can live in assurance and grow in the truth and grow as we live out the gospel and grow as we love one another. Thank you for that privilege. Help us to live that life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.